Good evening. My name's Lisa, and I'm reading the first Bible reading tonight from Genesis chapter 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out into the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like, and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother and she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. Then she handed to her son, Jacob, the tasty food and bread that she had made. He went to his father and said, "'My father,' Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognise him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? he asked. I am, he replied. Then, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate, and he brought some wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too 
prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came in, and I blessed him. Indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, bless me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him lord over you and have made all his relatives his servants and I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. That's a bit of a cliffhanger, but that's where we're leaving it. Um, The second Bible reading is over the page, chapter 28, starting from verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you will wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. When Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I just want to say a big thank you to many of your kind words, uh, either face-to-face or via text this week. Uh, It's been a big week, but your words mean more than you know. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, thank you that on this Pentecost Sunday... A day when we remember all those years ago where your spirit poured out on your people. We thank you that as we just heard you speak, Lord God, as your word was opened, and those words that God breathed, shaped by your Holy Spirit. And we know that spirit lives within us, helping us to know what they mean, to expose areas we need to grow and learn, meditate on, we thank you that you are with us every time we open your word. Amen. I want to begin by giving you a bit of a challenge. I want you to open your Bible and find me an example of a healthy, functional, normal family. 
I'll give you a couple of minutes. In fact, I'll give you a couple of hours. It is very hard, right? The Bible has a lot of things to say about parenting and family through you know, commands and wisdom. But often the way in which families are described in the Bible, they are dysfunctional. They behave badly. They made very unwise decisions. And the piece de resistance is in Genesis 27 28 with Isaac, Rebecca, and their twin boys. The Bible often doesn't show you a model family to copy. It shows you that despite human brokenness, despite family brokenness, God still can bring about redemption in the mess that we've made. So there's hope. If your family is more like a Jerry Springer episode than the Brady Bunch, there is hope. Hope for your family. Hope because God will use the most dysfunctional families to achieve his good purposes and plan. We're going to do three things tonight. We're going to look in detail at this dysfunctional family. And secondly, we're going to look at the grace that God shows. And thirdly, we're going to look at even more grace that God shows. Before we delve into this family, we kind of need to know their backstory. Last week, we met Isaac and Rebecca and how they met each other and those wretched camels. Remember that? We sort of the how they got to know each other, how they got married. But they struggled to have children, but God blessed them with the kids, twin boys. In Genesis chapter 25, on the screen, it says this. Rebecca became pregnant. The babies jostled about each other within her, and she said, what is happening to me? Right? There's no ultrasounds in those days. She had no idea. But she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from when you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, on staff here at Bridge Church, we've, uh, three members of staff have three sets of twins, right? Oh, sorry. We've got three sets of twins on staff, right? Not one person has three sets of twins. That would be traumatic. But uh, we've got three different types of twins here. And the recent one is Curtis and Joe. They've had Coco and Remy. And if you ask Joe when she found out that she was having twins, she would tell you she was shocked, right? Rebecca here would also be shocked to find out she's having twins, but I tell you what she'll be even more shocked by. What God said, that the older will serve the younger. That, to her ears, would have been shocking. Let's talk a little bit about birth order for a moment. I got this book many years ago called The Firstborn Advantage, Making Your Birth Order Work for You. And as a fellow firstborn, I love this book, right? It's a great book. It tells you all the great things we've done, you know, the firstborns, you know, from the astronauts, the presidents, and all that. It also tells you we're more likely to need therapy than any other person in the birth order. But it's interesting, right? In the ancient Near East, birth order was a very big deal. If you were the firstborn son, you were the prized child out of them all. You were given all the inheritance and then were to be a benefactor for the rest of your siblings, right? The firstborn son was a very big deal. But it's interesting, you open the Bible and God is continually subverting this hierarchical structure in not choosing the oldest son, whether it's Abel or David or Moses. And here, Jacob. So that's a bit of a background, backstory, which we'll come back to later on. But now we come to a moment in this family's life that is a very big moment. 
It is the moment where the father would publicly, with all the family there, pass on the blessing, the inheritance to the oldest son. There were no wills in those days, so this was a big moment. But it's amazing how big moments become pressure points for exposing dysfunction that's happening in your family. Let's look at each four members of the family. Let's start with Isaac. In Genesis chapter 27, it says this. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called Esau, his oldest son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Now, at first glance, we think this is pretty normal. But notice who's there and who's not there. It's just the father and the son. No other member of the family is present. Why is that? Why is this blessing happening in the back room of the tent secretly? It's because Isaac is trying to bypass God's intention by secretly blessing him. I mean, Esau is his favorite son. You know, he's, a, he's an athlete. He's a hunter. He's like him, a firstborn. He, he wants his son to experience what he has. He doesn't want the younger, the older to serve the younger. I mean, what would people think? This is not what's done. What would they think of me? He knows what God says, but you know what? He knows what he wants. And that is what he does. And things for, that will never go well. Sin will always find you out one way or the other. And by the end of this story, verse 33, Isaac is trembling violently. Why? Because he's been exposed. He tried to outwit God and he couldn't. Friends, no matter how sneaky you are, no matter how secret you are, your sin will always find you out. That's Isaac. Next, Rebecca, verse 5. Now, Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Now, it's clear, right? Isaac and Rebecca, based on the interactions with one another, their marriage is not in a good place. I mean, they were so in love last time we saw them. But it's amazing how they went from face to face, and then all of a sudden kids came along, and their marriage began to turn sour. Now, it's a natural thing, right, when twins come along. You've got to do a bit of shoulder-to-shoulder work, right? There's a lot of sleepless nights in that. But that became the norm. And rather than turning back to one another's husband and wife, the focus became all about the kids. And worse, they picked favourites. Isaac loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. And what began as a blessing became a barrier and separated the two, where distrust, suspicion and distance became their norm. But it's interesting for Rebecca, her approach is very different to Isaac. She is all for the older serving the younger. She's all for what God has said. But she goes about it in all the wrong ways, through deception and lies. She takes advantage of her husband's disability, the fact that he cannot see. And she works out, how can I trick my husband into thinking Jacob is really Esau? Now, it's interesting, Jacob sees the problem. Verse 11, he says says to his mum, Mum, my brother Esau is hairy, right? I'm smooth skin. What if my father touches me? It would appear to be tricking him, and he would bring down a curse on me rather than a blessing. His mum said, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. 
Rebecca knows how to cook meat in half the time her son Esau does. She knows what a husband likes to eat, which flavours really tickle his fancy. She knows which clothes would be best for Jacob to wear that smell just like Esau. She knows which animal to skin that is the right texture that feels like her son's Esau hair so Jacob can cover himself in. This is not out-of-the-blue decision. This has been a well-thought-through plan probably for many years knowing this moment's going to come. Rebecca pursued God's promises, but she went about it in all the wrong ways. She thought God needed help. She was obedient, but lies and deceit are never the way. And in the end, she loses the very son that she loves. Let's look at the boys. Esau. Esau is a man's man, an alpha male, right? Big guy, very hairy, rough, rugged, hunter, right? Would have been great on the TV series alone, right? He would have just thrived in that space. But he has no regards for God one bit. He's a man focused on one thing, himself, his needs, his desires, his belly. In Genesis 25, a couple of chapters before, he comes in from hunting, right? Gone out hunting and he is famished, really hungry. And he sees his brother there cooking, Jacob. Jacob loves to cook. He's just cooking basic stew, right? And he said, give me that stew. I need to eat it. And Jacob said, well, how about you give me your birthright, right? And all the blessings that come with that, and I'll give you this stew. Now, if you think you've made a decision, bad decision while hungry, right, this takes it to a whole new level. Because the birthright, I mean, it's a wealthy family. It would have been, let's say, about $30 million, right, in exchange for a two-minute noodle soup. Right? That's the deal we're talking here, right? Worst deal ever. But Esau doesn't. Gives up his birthright for a bowl of soup. I could give you many more bad decisions Esau had made. But you know what his response is always? Chuck a tantrum. Verse 34, when Esau heard his father's word, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. He takes no responsibility. The problem is never him, always others. And in the end, he's so furious with Jacob that he wants to kill him. Let's look at Jacob, last but not least. You know, the word Jacob means deceiver. And he learned it from his granddad, Abraham. He learned it from his mum, Rebecca. This sin runs in the family. And it's interesting, what is not transformed is transferred to the next generation. But why does Jacob go along with his mum's plan? Because he knows the risks involved. I think it's because he, he longs for his father's approval. I mean, some of you know what it's like not being the favourite, being overlooked, knowing your brother says they were the favourite and you, were, you know the pain of that. And here's an opportunity for Jacob to get his father's approval, his love, his affirmation, what he always wanted growing up. But the worst thing is he goes about it in all the wrong ways and he involves God in his deception. Verse 19, Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and so give me the blessing. 
Isaac does his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? Oh, the Lord, your God, gave me success. He sanitizes with the spiritual. And his dad takes the bait. The end result is Isaac is furious. Esau is weeping and plotting an assassination attempt on his brother. Jacob has to run and Rebekah loses her son. What is supposed to be a joyous celebration becomes an abysmal mess. Again, this is not a model family to copy, right? But this story is also not here just so you feel good about your own family, right? Well, we're not that bad, right? Sometimes I watch TV shows with my wife where the husband in the TV show is appalling, right? A real dropkick. I say at the end of the show, well, at least I'm not like that, right? That's not the purpose of this. The purpose is hope. That despite how messed up a family is, God is still at work. His purposes still stand. He specializes in redeeming the most dysfunctional. You know what's interesting, what God's response to this family is? He's not, well, let's send in Dr. Phil. His response is not, we need a parenting course or couple counseling. No, no, no. His response even is not a typical religious one. Where he comes in and lays on the guilt and says, come on, you guys are going to be in the Bible one day. Can you get your act together? Is this the best you can do? No, no, no. You know what his response is? Genesis 28. As Jacob is on the run, exhausted, grabs a rock for a pillow, he sleeps, and verse 12, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, which its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Richard Borkham is a well-renowned scholar in St. Andrews in Scotland, and he talks about this dream. And he says this, this image that Jacob is seeing, he would be very familiar with. Uh, back in his hometown of Ur, Jacob's ancestors, where they were, believed that the gods were up there and we're down here. And so they would build towers, ziggurats as they were, with staircases so that you could climb up and somehow get the gods to look at you, to get their approval, to, to get their blessing for the rain, for fertility, whatever it is. But you had to work your way up so that the gods would notice. That's why there's this Tower of Babel, right? To, to build this tower to get God to notice them. So this image would be very familiar, but Richard Borkham says, what's remarkable about Jacob's dream, he says, is he sees God not as one would expect at the top of the stairway, but there at the bottom. But despite all Jacob had done, despite that he was fleeing the consequences of his sin, God was seeking him. That God was not distancing himself from this family. He wasn't even saying, well, fix your life up, climb up, work your way out of this mess, look what you've done. No, no, no. He's saying, despite the mess you've come, I will come to you. Oh, so close to you. Another way of putting it, Jacob, you've stuffed up big time. But let me open up the gate of heaven for you. And you think, what? That doesn't make sense, does it? What's even more shocking is what God says. Verse 13, he says to Jacob, I'm the God of your father, 
Abraham and Isaac. And I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you many descendants. And people will be blessed through you. I'm going to be with you and watch over you. I will not leave you until I've done what I promised. All those words could be summed up with one word. Grace. Undeserved, over-the-top love. What's Jacob's response? He wakes up. Verse 17, and is afraid. He trembles at the knees. It says, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. See, Jacob knew about God through his dad, through his granddad. He knew stuff about his God, but here he's experiencing what Yahweh is really like. A God that came to him when he hit rock bottom, when he didn't deserve it in the slightest, and he gave him grace. Why is it that so many people become Christians when they hit rock bottom? Some people say, well, Christianity is for those who've got nothing to lose. Uh Uh-uh. Christianity is for those who realize they have nothing to offer. And that is you and that is I. The people God is seeking is not the people who have their life in order. I mean, look at Jacob. He's looking for those who know they have nothing to offer and willingly receive his love. And friends, we don't have a dream to look to. We have a reality. Because the gate of heaven is not a place that you can go. It is a person. Where God has come down in Jesus Christ and said, I am the gate. God doesn't say, fix up your life and then I'll come. No, no, no. He says, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to give you my life, redeem you, so that you can enter heaven. And like Jacob, we can say, ah, I have found the gate of heaven because he has found me. But there's more grace. On what foundation did this all come about? Let's go back to the beginning. Look, Remember, God chose Jacob. The younger, the older will serve the younger. Why? Some of you might be thinking at this point, hang on, James. Why is it not okay for Isaac and Rebecca to show favorites to their kids? But it seems like it's okay for God to show favorites in choosing Jacob, not choosing Esau. If you weren't thinking that, you're probably thinking it now, right? What is it sort of this is inconsistency of God? If he, if he chooses some, not choose other, what's happening here? Let's talk a bit about favoritism for a moment. Why is it that Isaac favored Esau? It's because he saw himself in his son. He was like him. He was impressive. He saw things that he liked and so he was drawn to. Why did Rebecca love Jacob? Why did he favor Jacob? Because she saw herself in him. He loved to cook. She loved to cook. There was a shared interest. There's something that he had that she resonated with. Favoritism always comes from a place of, I love you because you fulfilled something within me. But that's not how God chooses in Romans chapter 9, it's on the screen. It says this. Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had, 
done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Why was Jacob chosen? It had nothing to do with him. He was chosen even before he was born, even before he was able to do anything. And the same is for us, friends. God chooses us before the creation of the whole world. Not because of our race or our morals or our good looks or behavior or talents. There is no favor for God to show favoritism towards us. The basis of God choosing is not in you. It is in grace and grace alone. He says, I love you. Not because you fulfill me. No, no, because I simply love you. Now, we might ask the question, right? But it does seem a bit unjust. And it's interesting, the Holy Spirit knows that because what's the next verse in Romans chapter 9? It says this, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Notice that word desire. Sometimes you think, well, I think God would choose those who ultimately would have chosen him anyway. But do you think God, Jacob would have chosen God if it was left up to him? I think it's safe to say no. If Jacob was left to his own free will, he would have freely walked away from God and never returned. And the same is for you and I. Left to our own devices, in the state of sin, with a hardness of heart, we would have never in a million years, chosen Jesus. When my mum was little, about two years old, they lived down the south coast, and near where they live was a massive highway with semi-trailers going down. And uh, there was a moment where my mum, at two years old, left the house and went towards the road. Her dad, my granddad, called out, Sandy, Sandy! Mum was a disobedient child at two, right? Ignored. Sandy, Sandy, come back, come back! She's running towards the highway, running, running. Sandy, come back. She did not listen. Granddad ran and ran and just in the nick of time grabbed her by the scuff of the neck and pulled her back. He called many times. She did not listen. It was only until he grabbed her that she was saved. And friends, that's predestination. We are running towards hell. We are running away from God and call out many times, but unless God intervenes, there is no hope for us. Now, do we choose God or does God choose us? The answer is yes. I mean, Jacob, after this dream, chooses to follow God. This is the moment, I would say, he became a Christian. He put his trust in God for himself. It's not just the God of his dad or his granddad. It was his God. But behind our believing... Behind all our coming to Jesus, it is grace alone as the Father elects us, Jesus chooses us, and the Spirit awakens our hearts. You know when we sing, and we're going to sing it in a moment, I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You know what that means? It means God bursts into the orphanage of sin and picked you. He said, you, I want you to be my child. Not because of anything you've done, but because I love you. You cannot have adoption without election. And Jacob knows this. His salvation is anchored not in himself, not in his desire, but it is eternally grounded in the sovereign grace of God. 
So let me just wrap up with three practical things of what it means to be graciously chosen by God. Firstly, hope. There is hope no matter how dysfunctional your family is, particularly to those in your family who you love but at this point do not believe the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Jacob. On face value, he wouldn't have fitted the criteria of someone you'd think would be a follower of God, would you? Deceiver, liar. But the criteria does not rest on human terms. It rests on the graciousness of God. And friends, can I just say, even, this is where this is, gives me such hope, this, this doctrine. Even if I do not hear the words, Jesus is Lord from the lips of my dying, unbelieving family or friends, I trust not in the faith that they have not declared, I trust in the graciousness of God that he can open up the hardest of hearts even in the last moment of their dying breath because salvation is not on us, it comes to us. Secondly, there's joy. There is joy being chosen to adopt into God's family. Because when God welcomes you into his family by grace and grace alone, it means you can go back and be an ambassador for grace in your biological ones. Conflict is going to arise in your family all the time, particularly at certain pressure points like weddings or funerals or Christmas, right? There it really exposes all sorts of weirdness in our families. Deceiving, lying, tricking, someone's playing the victim, no one's taking responsibility, there's favourites, people have forgotten. But it is a beautiful opportunity to, to blend two families together, your spiritual one and your biological one. In your spiritual family, you've received grace and abundance by Jesus who loved you when you are at your worst. And you get to introduce that into your biological family. For they experience what you have experienced by the Lord Jesus Christ. Third and final thing, relief. You know, if you're the favourite there is such pressure on you to keep maintaining the favour that drives favouritism. Keep got to being smart, the successful one, the one who's the high achiever, the one who's got life in order. You keep got to doing it, but not so with God. If he's graciously chosen us, not because of us, despite us, that liberates. Let me end with these words by Martin Luther, who wrote in The Bondage of the Will. I confess that I would not want free will even if it was given to me. If my salvation were left to me, I would be no match for all the dangers and difficulties and devils that I have to fight. But even if there were no enemies to fight, I could never be certain of success. I would never be sure I'd please God or whether there was one, something more I needed to do. I can prove this from my own painful experience over many years. But my salvation is in God's hands and not my own. He will be faithful to his promise to save me, not on the basis of what I've done, but according to his great mercy. By free will, not one person can be saved, but by free grace, many will be saved. Not only so, not only so, but I am glad to know that as a Christian, I please God, not because of what I do, but because of his grace. If I work too little or too badly, graciously pardons me and makes me better. This is the glory of all Christians. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, as the hymn goes, amazing grace 
How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And though Jacob did not know those words, boy, could he have sung them. That at his worst, when he hit rock bottom, when he didn't deserve it in the slightest, you revealed yourself to him and showed him abundant grace. And we know, Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And you have experienced, we have experienced that grace through you, Lord Jesus, being the gate of heaven to come to us, to die for us, and offer us blessings in eternity. We thank you that you are the God of grace who's chosen us, adopted us, saved us, redeemed us, sanctified us, and one day will glorify us when you return. We thank you for what you have done and we are wrapped up in this wondrous story that you are telling. Amen.